a card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Just the next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. I'm your host, Professor Adi Weiner of the Department of Statistics at the Wharton School of Business, the University of Pennsylvania. And I and my colleagues, Eric Bradlow, Cade Massey, and Shane Jensen, host a show on Sirius XM called Wharton Moneyball. You can hear that show live on Wednesdays in the morning at 8 a.m. until 10 a.m. Eastern Time. This week, we had two very interesting guests. We had Luke Bourne, who is the VP of Strategy and Analytics for a basketball team, a professional basketball team, the Sacramento Kings. Luke is well known to our show. He's one of our first guests. Luke was a professor at Harvard, and then he became a professor at Simon Fraser University. And he's interesting from the academic side of things because he made the segue, the transition from academic to professional analyst for a basketball team. We also had a recurring guest, Rick Peterson. Rick Peterson is a longtime pitching coach in the major leagues for the Mets, for the A's. He was a pitching development coach for the Baltimore Orioles, and now he is a keynote speaker and author. He has a new book out, and we also talked to Rick about some of the new goings-on in Major League Baseball. So our first clip is with Luke Bourne, who has developed technology to track all the movements in a basketball game. That's definitely where people see uh, the sort of initial benefit in tracking data. And that's largely because on offense, it's just so easy to track or to to measure and count the basics of offense, who scored the points, who put up the assist, who got the rebound. On defense, defense is really – good defense is about preventing things from appearing in the box score. If you're guarding a guy all night and he doesn't show up in the box score, you've done a really good job. Mm -hmm. And so – because of that, you need sort of more fine-grained information to say um, um, how how good of a defender you are and in which situations are you a good defender. So which guys are good defenders off the screen? Which guys are, are good defenders in the perimeter? Which guys are preventing shots in the paint? Mm-hmm. And the tracking data allows you to do that. So what tracking data is really best at at this point is capturing the unobservables. And Luke was describing the ability of tracking data to track defense. And defense, of course, is the prevention of baskets and baskets show up in the box score. And if you prevent baskets, then you won't see them in the box score. But the tracking data allows you to break that down into much more refined segments to see where players are able to stop shots and at what parts of the basketball court. Our next clip is with Luke again, and he's really talking about how statisticians, you know, how do they interact with a much larger organization? A lot of statisticians, when they go into an organization, tend to go in with their own ideas and their own agenda. And I approach things very differently. I tend to think more so along the lines of going to the people that are there and saying, how can I help you do your job better? How can I help you make your decisions more objectively? And then that creates an open dialogue of, oh, you know, I really wish that we could see what the training loads have been or understand whether the training loads Mm -hmm. are high or low or understand who's creating space in this situation when we're counterattacking in this particular formation. So then when people start talking their language and then I've had luck at converting some of those sports information into quantitative information. And so I very much view Mm -hmm. it as a chance to 
instead of going in and saying, you know, here's who to draft, here's how to think about player fatigue, here's how to hear the best players in trade and see, it's sort of going in and saying, hey, what do you care about? Mm-hmm. And how can we help make those decisions more objectively? By way of background there, Luke had spent some time consulting for soccer teams in Europe. And that's what he was talking about, making space. And that comes from the soccer field. And of course, it analogizes very nicely to basketball where he is right now. It's interesting because it's a a hard task, I think, for an expert who has all this at his disposal, lots of technology. They kind of want to tell the organization what they've learned. And what Luke is saying is far more effective, he believes, to go to the individuals and say, what do you need to do your job? And maybe I have tools that can help you do your job better. So our next clip is another one with Luke talking about communication and using language that it's very difficult, again, for an expert, a technical expert, to find the language to speak to non-technical experts. I learned a lot about communicating information. You can imagine when you're there, sort of traditional Italian culture, uh, speaking Italian, etc. And your communication skills have to really be on point. And so <laughs> yeah. I got really good at communicating information visually. I've always been into data visualization, as anyone who's sort of seen my work knows. But it, I think it really took it to the next level. As you, right. you know, you can't rely on language to communicate. That's amazing. Yeah, I guess I left off that when he was consulting in soccer, he was consulting in Milan, which was Italian. And that, of course, raised its own set of communication challenges that go beyond statistics and looking for a statistical language that could be understood globally. One of the important aspects of a job as a statistician working for a team is to help with draft choices. And in the NBA in particular, draft choices are mighty important. There are very few players. There are two rounds of a draft, and you really have to get it right. So here is Luke talking about some of the difficulties in making draft selections. When people talk about a draft and they say, oh, you know, Ode oh, Greg Oden is so much better than Kawhi Leonard, sorry, uh, uh, Kevin Durant, for instance, right? That, that was sort of the narrative. And you look back and you realize that there's just so much variability in players' career trajectories. And so when you look at, for instance, the typical performance of the first pick versus the second pick, third, and so on, if I gave you sort of the list of number three picks and I gave you the list of number five picks, you probably wouldn't be able to tell me which is which. There is a lot of variability, so you're, any model which you build is going to be sort of influenced by that variability. You, know, you have number one picks and number two picks and number three picks that completely bust. And similarly, you have number 59 picks. Uh, it was a 57. Ginobili was either 57 or 59. I can't remember off the top of my head. But you also have sort of really late picks that perform really, really well. So that's actually an amazing observation that when you look at basketball players' historical picks, if you looked at the threes and you looked at the fives, you would probably have a very hard time telling the difference between the threes and the fives. The fifth picks and the third picks are, at least on average, not that far apart and not so far apart that the variability between the groups is so much larger than the difference in the averages. So you'll see some busts, you'll see some incredible successes in both groups, the threes and the fives, and you can't say at any level that uniformly the threes are better than the fives. And that's pretty high up in the draft that you'd you'd expect that maybe you would see that. I know that you can see it at the top. The one compared to two, and certainly two compared to five, is is something that that is pretty obvious to anyone who knows basketball performance and basketball history. But when you get down to the bottom, he made the point that you'll even find a 57, a 56, who turns out to be a pretty good player. 
That means that's a slightly different observation. Occasionally, you'll find someone who's terrific down at the bottom, but the vast majority of the players down at the bottom really don't amount to very successful or certainly not star-level careers. So let's change directions. Last week, we interviewed Rick Ankeel, and Rick Ankeel's famous for a number of accomplishments while being a baseball player. But one is the transition from being a failed starting pitcher to being a successful, if not superstar, um, position player. He played in the outfield, and he somehow managed to make this transition from a failed pitcher to a successful outfielder. And we asked Rick Peterson, former Major League Baseball pitching coach, what he thought of that transition. I'm trying to think of anybody who's ever done it. I, he, he may be the only. I, I can't think of one, one pitcher that made it to the big leagues as an accomplished pitcher that looked like he was going to have a really nice career as a pitcher. And then for whatever reason, whether it's a physical injury or a mental you know, deficiency, and then come back and be a successful player in the big leagues, I mean, that, that really goes to show how, you know, how unique and how talented, you know, on a physical level he truly is. And, and mentally, you know, that he, would, that he would eventually allow himself to have the, the, the self-compassion, which I don't think I've ever said that ever in my life, self-compassion, where he could literally forgive himself and say, you know what, it's okay. It, it, it's all right now. You know, let me give this up and then let me go enjoy playing baseball again because I love playing baseball. Yep, he loves playing baseball. And that was actually one of the things that Rick told us. He couldn't be a pitcher because it just was too much of a strain and he didn't love it. And it really was an amazing thing for him to do to switch and continue to play the game he loved. Our next clip again is with Rick talking about what makes players great. Your mind is your master, your body is your servant. And it goes back, I've said this about Tom Brady, you know, Derek Jeter. What makes them so great? They weren't the fastest runner. They didn't jump the highest. They didn't have the best arms. They didn't have the best power. They had the best minds on the field, without question. And when you when you walked down that field, you knew that Derek Jeter was going to find some way to beat you on a, on a daily basis. And you, and you you felt it. You knew it. We went into the playoffs in, after September 11th, and you know we had a game plan to face Jeter. And it was just like, hey, listen, this is the guy that we're most concerned about. If he comes up with money on the table, this is a guy that produces. And it, it's just one of those phenomena. I mean, it, and it's really curious. So Rick, as a coach, is almost a psychological coach. You have to be a mental coach because to be highly successful at really anything requires tremendous mental fortitude. And in our next clip, Rick is talking about just the slight amount of change that is needed in order to become highly successful. Let's take a look at some of the great pitchers in the game. Your fastball is as good as this guy. Your, your secondary pitches are as good as this guy. Why can't you be as good as this guy? Of course you can. You know, but it's your mind. And it's the ability, literally, one pitch at a time. You take a starting pitcher, he's roughly going to throw somewhere between 3,200 and 3,400 3,400 pitches a year if he gets 32 starts, if he stays healthy, which is rare in today's game. But you, you can train your mind to literally one pitch at a time. And one of the things I would always do with our pitchers coming into the next year, I would say, can you make a 2% improvement? 2%. So let's say as a starter you threw 3,000 pitches. You know, 2% is what, 60? Where would your mind be if we gave you a mulligan on 60 pitches? Only 2%. 
how well do you think you would do now? Probably cut your ERA in half and then take all, take a look at all the others. Well, that depends on which 60 pitches. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. You choose them. You okay. choose your moment. I mean, go back to Jordan Spieth. Jordan, you got two shots. You got two. How many shots have you made? Practice shots and 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 in tournament shots. You got two shots. Let's go back to the hole number twelve. Where would Jordan Spieth now be today if you could put your mind in a different place? So there's actually an analogy that Rick is making between a golfer and a pitcher. When a golfer makes errors, the golfer, of course, has to absorb the full consequence of those errors. When a pitcher makes an error, not every error is taken advantage of. So if you miss in the strike zone, then maybe it's just a ball. Maybe you throw one down the middle and the batter fails to take advantage of it. So I think a pitcher does have more than just 60 pitches throughout a season that are the ones that really are costly. But if you could make a 2% improvement, if you could pick where they happen, if you can end those, that might be the difference between the superstars and just the ordinary major league pitcher. Well, that concludes another episode of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. If you want to listen to the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under Podcasts. Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball Live every Wednesday in the morning from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Please join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. I'm your host, Professor Adi Weiner, and until then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistical analysis.